there was there was a television show a few years ago that had a main character in it who had done some really horrible, terrible things. He was caught up in a, a drug culture. He had taken advantage of people. He had abused people. He had witnessed some terrible things and even murdered somebody. And he had gotten away with all of this. But he, he tried to get his life cleaned up, tried to get back on the straight and narrow. And so he found his way to a 12-step recovery program. And the message of this program was that Everyone just needs to accept themselves. During a meeting, the leader of the group said, look, we can't change the past, we need to own our actions, but we can't put ourselves on trial and act as our own judge, jury, and executioner. Because all that judging will do is create shame, and that will just cause us to repeat the cycle of addiction and of abuse. So we're not here to sit in judgment. But the main character who had done so many evil things, he didn't like that. That was insufficient. He knew that he had gotten away with what he had done so far, but he knew also that eventually it was going to catch up with him. Deep down, he's awaiting judgment, and he can't handle the fact that he has not yet gotten it. He's torn apart by his guilt, and he didn't find this self-help message of this recovery program comforting at all. He said this, Why shouldn't there be a judge? If you just do stuff and get away with it, what's it all mean? What's the point? We just need to accept ourselves, so no matter what I do, hooray for me because I'm a great guy, it's all good. No matter what I do, I just remember how I'm actually a good person and I just accept myself, that's garbage. And he got up and he walked out of the group meeting. Now mind you, this is not a Christian show, but it illustrated a part of the human condition that is so true. Our conscience recognizes that breaking the law requires punishment. Whether we break our own internal law of what it is that we think is right or wrong, or an external law, a law from the government or a law from God, we know that there has to be consequences to injustice. Otherwise, evil just flourishes and good loses all of its meaning. The lie that our society tells us is this. It's the same lie of that 12-step program on this television show. I said, hey, when you feel guilty, you just need to accept yourself. Just Stuff that guilt down and just try to convince yourself that you're not ashamed of the horrible things that you've done and the terrible thoughts that you have. Stuff your guilt down. Just try to rationalize it away. But the character in this TV show knew that that was too shallow of an answer. He couldn't just rationalize his guilt away. It did not ease his guilty conscience. So what do you do when you feel guilty about the sin that you've done? For the Christian, you know that sin must be punished, and you know that God is a perfect judge, but you also know that he's merciful, and you know that he's gracious. So how can these two aspects of God's character come together and meet? How can those two things be true at the same time? If he's a just judge, how could he be merciful and good at the same time? Have you ever wondered that? How does God accept sinful people and at the same time maintain his justice? Well, that is the question that our sermon text is answering this morning, and it's the big idea of our sermon. The big idea of this passage is that God maintains his mercy and justice by declaring sinners righteous through the satisfaction of his wrath in Christ. The big idea of this passage is that God maintains his mercy and justice by declaring sinners righteous through the satisfaction of his wrath in Christ. God, in his wisdom, made a way for him to display or manifest his holiness 
by judging sin while at the same time expressing his forgiveness and his mercy to saving sinners in the same act. It all happened in the same place, the, the penal substitutionary atonement of the cross of Christ. So here's what I need us to know this morning. Here's what we need to know. God, through Jesus' death, has righteously dealt with his wrath. And salvation is now available to everyone. I want us to try to understand that. I want us to understand what God accomplished at the cross with as much precision as we can. There's a lot here in this passage, and I want to think about this carefully. We need to understand the cross because, this should be evident, but we need to understand the cross because we have to know how to be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is the gospel. This gospel is the power of God to save. This is the good news which brings us to life and it sustains us as Christians. So before we start, let's stop and ask the Holy Spirit to light up our hearts this morning as we drink in this pure spiritual milk of the word. Pray with me. Father, how precious is your steadfast love. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your rings. You are our rock of ages. We ask this morning that this message of your gospel would sink deep down into us, into our hearts this morning. Would you stir up by means of your word confession of sin, faith in your promises, hope, humility, praise, and a response of love to Jesus Christ through your word and by your spirit. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is, it's difficult to jump, jump right in the middle of the book of Romans, so I want to give us a little bit of context so we understand what's going on here. So, Romans is a brilliant and important book of the Bible. I'm sure you guys already know that. It's one long, logical argument that Paul is constructing, and so you can't just jump in and take it willy-nilly. You've got to understand what he said before, what he's saying after. You have to understand the whole argument. So, to understand any part of this well, I want to introduce the introduction of Romans. Paul started his letter by establishing that he is not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16, because it is God's power for salvation, and that in God's gospel, he's revealing, he's manifesting his righteousness. That's important. That'll come back later. Then from verse 18 of chapter 1 till verse 20 of chapter 3, it's just one long argument talking about how God is right to have wrath against mankind because all have sinned, all of us. And then in our passage here, he explains how God's patience, his grace, his mercy meet with his righteousness and his justice and his wrath in a very profound way. So the the question, once again, that Paul is really addressing here is this. How can God fulfill his promises, because he's promised to save a people, while at the same time staying faithful to his word that he will punish sin. It's the, answer, it's the answer to the mystery that was in our call to worship text from Exodus. Remember what it said there? The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, if everyone is guilty, and we are, it's what Paul just said, how could he forgive our iniquity? How can he forgive our transgression and our sin? That's the mystery that carries on really all the way through the Old Testament, from Genesis 3 on, all the way here to Romans 3, 21 to 26, where we get it clearly explained. So let's walk through this passage. I just want to 
help us understand how it is that Paul explains this. It's going to require some effort on your part. Are you okay with that? Ooh, that didn't sound good. Yes? This, this side over here is ready to go. Let's, let's not just gloss over these words, though, okay? I know that these are like maybe big words or just sort of standard Christian words, and you could just read over this and be like, yeah, that sounds like a bunch of good church words to say, but I don't really know what that means. That's not ideal. I want you to leave here this morning to actually be able to explain this passage to someone else. Because if you can, you can share the gospel. That's good, right? Well, you definitely have to have your Bible open. So if you don't yet, find it. Open it up. Romans chapter 3. You might want to take notes. Get out your number two pencils. Well, if you look at this passage, you're going to notice that there are, and I hope you are looking at it physically, you're going to notice that there are a few words that repeat themselves in this passage. In fact, let me show you a a word cloud of this passage. It's a word cloud, so the words that show up more often are bigger. So you can tell just visually what the the main theme of this passage is. It's the righteousness of God. That's a phrase that comes up four different times in this text alone. And every time it comes up, it's being revealed, it's being manifested. God is showing his righteousness in some way. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't seem to be using the phrase, the righteousness of God, in the same way every time he uses it. This is really key for you to understand this passage. I want to suggest that the first two times Paul mentions the righteousness of God, he's talking about a saving righteousness of God, God's saving righteousness. And then at the end of the passage, in verses 25 and 26, he's mentioning God's judging righteousness. I know that might not seem important yet, but it will be by the time we get done with this. Hold on to that idea. God's saving righteousness and his judging righteousness. All right, so first, in verse 21 to 22a, we see God's saving righteousness. I'll read that passage again. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Martin Luther was a monk in the 1500s, and for the longest time, whenever he would read through Romans, and he saw this phrase, the righteousness of God, he hated it. He hated it, because he thought that this righteousness was God was only his judging righteousness. It was only about how God was perfectly good, and we are not, and he's going to judge us, and he's like, that's not good news. I don't, I don't know that. I don't need that. I, I need something to calm my conscience, because Luther was a monk. He lived in a monastery. He prayed all the time. He studied the Bible. He taught the Bible. And yet, he was racked over an awareness of his sinfulness. His conscience was tormented over his guilt with sin. But his true conversion to Christianity happened when he understood that this righteousness of God is actually referring to a righteousness that comes from God to man. It's, it's a righteousness that would save humanity, not just judge humanity. It's a state of being in a right relationship with God that only God can bring about. This is his saving righteousness. And so when Luther recognized this, what Paul's truly saying here, he said this. He said, quote, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. And this manifestation of God's righteousness, his salvation, it's different from what we've seen in the Old Testament. 
the sin of God's people was dealt with there under that Old Testament sacrificial system in, in the temple, right? Uh, that's how God maintained a right relationship with his people. The sacrifices that Israel did would satisfy in some way his wrath and his anger, his anger against sin. But now, Paul says, this is different, God's saving righteousness is being manifested apart from that system, apart from the old covenant law with its sacrificial system of dealing with sin. This is different from that. But it's not as if this new era of redemption is entirely different, because Paul also says that the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, another way to say the Old Testament, itself bears witness to this. The Old Testament pointed towards a righteousness of God that would come to humanity through faith in the Messiah for everyone who believes, both Jew and Gentiles. God's righteousness is not only limited to Israel. It's for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, including us. We're Gentiles. We're not Jews for the most part, I would imagine. So God's God's righteousness, his salvation, comes to all who believe in Christ. And Luther understood the gospel finally when he realized that we don't get right with God because of our doing, but because of our believing. He was racked with a guilty conscience because he, he recognized that he could never do enough. If it was up to him, he would never be good enough, despite the fact that he dedicated his life in a monastery to God. Friends, neither can we. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right before God. We can't save ourselves. And we can please God with our obedience once we have faith in Christ. But apart from Christ, all of our efforts are in vain. If you believe that God declared you perfectly righteous apart from anything that you could ever do, how might that change things? How might that change things in your life? Would you have a greater assurance of your salvation? Would you grow in joy because you recognize that you spent more time resting in the finished work of Jesus than inspecting your own failures and faults? Maybe you would stop constantly looking for ways to shift the blame to someone else, trying to justify yourself. Maybe you'd be more willing to confess your sin to God in prayer. Or how about us here as a church, as Trinity? How would this change things if we truly believed this and acted like it was true? Would we be more likely, more quick to ask for help from others when we recognize that we're falling into patterns of sin? Well, salvation is by faith in Christ alone. There's one way of salvation for all, because everyone is in the same predicament, the same predicament of sin. Look at the next verses. Verse 22 and 23 says this. It recognizes humanity's sin problem. It says this, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's, there's no distinction, speaking there of a difference between Jew or Gentile. He's talking about everybody is in the, just the same boat, no matter who you are, when you were born, where you were born. Everyone has sinned. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. All people throughout history have this one thing in common. We are sinners. To fall short of the glory of God seems a little bit confusing. For a long time, and I read this verse, I really didn't understand what that meant. Like, to fall short is like you step back for a, a 20-footer playing basketball, and it just, uh, just fell short. 
just fell short. Like you were close to perfect righteousness, just a little bit off. Is that the idea that he's saying? Well, maybe it would help you to think of this as to lack or to be without the glory of God. All have sinned and lack the glory of God. Does that help you? So it might be helpful just to think of it as God's glory being something that we, we don't have that we need rather than something that we failed to achieve. And we were real close. It's not the point. I think what he's saying here, in fact, earlier in his letter, Paul talks about this. He says that in our idolatry, in our sinfulness, we exchanged the glory of God for the image of created beings. So I think we lack something good, which is the glory of God, because we have sinned in our idolatry. Now, do you think that that's true of you? That's my question for you. I won't assume that because you're in a church service this morning that you recognize that you have a need for grace. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 3, just right before our passage. He says this. He's describing this sinful condition of humanity in verses 18, uh, 10 to 18. He says this. Romans 3, 10 to 18. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does, does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is strong language. You think that's true of you? Um, sometimes when you read this, you, think, you might think, well, surely, Paul, this is hyperbole. I know some good people. I, I have some great neighbors. Maybe Paul's just sort of going overboard. He doesn't really mean everybody. Paul's talking about our depravity. He's talking about something different. He's talking about our, our righteousness before God, not our ability to be nice to people. Certainly there are people who are good neighbors through God's common grace. But Paul's talking about something different here. He's talking about our depravity, our self-centered rebellion against God, that fallen nature that is inherent in everyone, all of us. As D.A. Carson has put it, the source of all evil is us wanting to go our own way and disowning the God who has made us. Our rebellion against God, our sin, has led to every horrible tragedy in history. You think that's true? Every war caused by our sin, every fracture in a relationship, every divorce, every murder, every lie, are we responsible for this in some way because of our sin? I really want us to be careful to not think of ourselves as just being totally different from like Hitler and criminals and like, well, that's, those people are bad and we're not. It's not the way, that's not the picture that Paul is painting. I hope you see that. Evil lies in our hearts as well as it does in everyone's heart. And we can see it when it comes out in our jealousy and in our hatred in our selfishness, our gossip, our slander, our boasting, our disobedience, our heartlessness. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian author who wrote about that universal nature of sin and depravity that's present in all of humanity. And he said this, I love this quote, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate from them, from the rest of us, and just destroy them. 
But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Well, if we understand our desperate need of rescue and our absolute helplessness, our absolute inability to save ourselves by our obedience to the law, now we're ready to appreciate the importance of the cross. God has a solution for humanity's sin problem. Look at verses 24 and the beginning of 25. Third, God's solution for sin. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So God, in his his grace, his infinite love, his mercy, his wisdom... He's provided a solution to this hopeless problem that we're all stuck in. Now, there are three big words that are in this passage. They need to be explained. Justified, redemption, and propitiation. All right here in this big, thick verse. First, justify. To justify means to declare righteous. It means, it does not mean to just let somebody off the hook. It's... That would not be just, right? You can't just wink at sin. You can't just be like, well, that's no big deal. You can't just pretend like they're righteous. You can't just pretend like they're innocent, even though they're not. No, it means that there is a declaration of righteousness. It's a legal term, so think, think of a courtroom. It's, it's the opposite of being condemned for your sin. So God is pronouncing people legally righteous, free from any liability to the law that they broke. Someone is justly acquitted. They're found not guilty. Because the penalty for the crime has been paid. It's a verdict also, you should know, that it's given on the spot the moment that someone believes they are justified. But how can someone be justified? How is the penalty for our crime paid? That brings us to the next word, redemption. Redemption is a costly rescue or a costly deliverance. This is a word that comes from the slave market where a slave might have been purchased with a price in order to set them free from their bondage of slavery. Uh, And a ransom would be the price that was paid for them, which is that price that was needed to set them free from their bondage. But for the Jews, this would have reminded them of something different. When they thought redemption, when they thought ransom, they would have thought of the Passover. It would have reminded them when God sent the angel of death to bring judgment upon Egypt for not letting his people go free. The angel of death passed over the Pharaoh's kingdom. But remember, all those who put the blood on the lintel of their house, they were saved, they were rescued from God's wrath. So at the cost of the lamb's life that was killed in order for the blood to be painted, God's people were saved from his wrath. Does this sound familiar? But but our slavery is more than just physical. It's a moral bondage. Our, Our bondage, our slavery, is a slavery to sin. And the price that was paid for our freedom, our ransom, was infinitely more costly than a lamb. First Peter says it this way, We were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Our redemption came at the cost of the death of Christ. And that brings us to that third word that I wanted to define, propitiation. This is probably the most unusual word of the three 
Propitiation is the satisfaction of wrath. Propitiation is the satisfaction of wrath. Now, if you're reading from the ESV or the King James, you're going to notice that that word propitiation is in your translation. If you're reading from the NIV or the CSV, you'll probably see a sacrifice of atonement, something like that. There are other translations as well that will say an expiation. This word is translated differently in different translations because there's some disagreement about the best way to bring this word out of Greek and into English so that we can maintain the meaning. Like, what was Paul actually trying to say there? Some translators wanted to say expiation, which is the wiping away of sin, like sort of clearing the record. There's no wrath involved. It's just God clearing our whiteboard of, or chalkboard of our record of our sins. And that's certainly true. Yes, our sin is expiated. It is wiped away. But it seems best to go with the ESV, the King James, when they translate it as propitiation. Here's why. That same Greek word that comes into English as propitiation is used elsewhere as the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies inside the temple. In that Old Testament again, remember, that bears witness to what's happening now? It's an allusion to the Old Covenant sacrificial system. It's, it's the place where the atoning sacrifice was made to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. So, just like that animal was slaughtered so that God's wrath against Israel would be satisfied in some way, so Jesus was sacrificed to satisfy God's wrath against mankind. So, you're starting to see now how how the Old Testament bore witness to what it is that Jesus would be doing in this new era of redemption. You see how it's different, though. You see how it's better. This, This word, though, this word propitiation, some people get squeamish about this word. They don't like it. They think that it sounds like some sort of pagan scene from times way past where the angry gods need to be satisfied by making some sort of bloody sacrifices of a human or something. But here's what you need to know. This propitiation is different from every other propitiation you've ever thought of or considered. Here's why. This is not something that we do to satisfy God's wrath. God does it. It is initiated by God. It is received by God. He is the subject and the object of his wrath. God the Father put forward God the Son, Jesus, to deal with our sin. And by his own blood, he propitiated his own wrath toward us. He paid the price himself. At the cross, our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, united to do the same work. And that work is this, to restore us back to a right relationship with him. Now, some people just don't like the idea of God having wrath at all that needs to be satisfied. And I understand that. Because wrath, anger, it's not typically seen as a good thing. It's a, a, bad, it's a sinful thing in humans. And so why could we say that God has wrath? But you need to know that God's wrath is different from ours. God's wrath is good. God's wrath is beautiful. God's wrath is beautiful. Is that hard to believe? Maybe you can think of a good human example. So if you hear that a, a, someone helpless has been abused, something in you sort of wells up, right? An, an anger, a wrath. And wouldn't you say that that's in some, some sense righteous? If you want justice to come about? That's maybe a glimpse of what God's wrath is like. But our, our anger is different from God's. My wrath gets stirred up when I'm at Disneyland and it's too crowded and people cut in front of me with their strollers. 
So when I work from my wrath back up to God's, it gets ugly. What we have to do is recognize that God is different from us. His wrath is defined by himself, not by us. God's wrath is perfect. It's always good. It's always right. It's always the right response to sin that is damaging his creation. It is offending his glory. And if God did not punish sin, he wouldn't be just. He would be an unjust judge. You need to grasp this. Because if you can't understand God's wrath, you can't understand the gospel. So, God's saving righteousness comes to us by faith. God justifies us. He declares us righteous because he redeemed us from our slavery, our bondage to sin by propitiating his wrath and wiping away our sin through the death of Jesus Christ. You see how that works? Justification, redemption, propitiation. That's how the saving righteousness of God comes to us. That righteousness of God comes to us through this process of salvation. Well, Christian, if you have been redeemed from this sin, if your liberty has been purchased, embrace your freedom. True freedom, though. What is true freedom? True freedom is freedom from your sin, not freedom to sin. Why would you want to fall back under that reign of sin that God has purchased you out of by the blood of his son? This is... I just want to scream this every time I get an opportunity. Freedom is not you do you. Yeah? Freedom is not follow your heart. Ah, that is the gospel of the age, guys. God's gospel is follow Christ. He bought you. He owns you. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. This is our only hope in life and death. So, why would God do this? Why would he put forward his son as a willing sacrifice to save his people? Because of his love? Yes. But that's not actually what Paul says first. Notice what Paul says. Paul says it was to show God's righteousness. Look at the last two uses of the phrase, the righteousness of God, in verses 25 and 26. Notice this last bit. God's judging righteousness says this. 25, the end there, and 26 says... This was to show, God's process of salvation was to show, that, show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, if you will remember back to the beginning, I told you that it seems Paul uses this phrase, the righteousness of God, in two different ways. The first two verses, it was his saving righteousness but in these two verses, it seems to refer to God's judging righteousness. So this has to do with God's justice and his wrath against sin. For Paul's audience, he's answering a question that we don't often actually ask today. I think the, the question that Paul is answering is, how is it that God has not already thrown everybody into hell? That's different from the perspective that most people have today, isn't it? The question is phrased entirely opposite today, mostly. We would say something like this. Why would God say anyone to hell? But that is not, that's not the picture that Paul's painting here. The question should come naturally if we follow his argument and we believe the word of God and we know this to be true in our hearts. We need to question ourselves. This should be our question. We should be wondering, 
Why isn't it that he hasn't judged everyone and found us all guilty? We are guilty. And I love what Paul does. He looks at this picture from, from two different sides of the cross. He goes back in time and he says, well, let's look at it before the time of the cross, in those former times. He says, what about those, those former sins that happened before the cross? How could someone like David, that we know, how could he be called righteous? We know darn well he was not righteous. He murdered. He was not righteous. How could God call him righteous? That doesn't make any sense. Here's how. Here's how David was saved. God looked forward to the cross. God knew that his wrath would be poured out against all of that evil that David did. All of his sins would be paid for on the cross. He knew that 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 wrath would be poured out. But what about at the present time? What about after the cross? What about us this morning? What about you and I? How is it that God can call us righteous even though we sin every single day? How could this be true? Well, it's because Jesus paid it all. I like how one rapper put it. He said this, Before the cross, they were saved on credit. After the cross, we've been saved on debit. (laughs) Jesus was the ransom that freed us from the wrath of God due for our sin, allowing God to call the guilty clean. At the cross, God showed his righteousness by saving his people through the judging of their sin in Christ. Now here's why this matters for us. For the true Christian, any suffering that we face is not punishment from God. It might be a loving correction from our Father. It might be the result of living in a fallen world, but it is never the wrath of God. God's position towards those that are His in Christ is always one of love and of care and of concern. We also need to know that God does not wink at sin. He doesn't just let it slide and say, well, look, I know that deep down you all are good folks. We'll just let it slide. That is not what God does. That would not be good news. If any of you have ever been a victim of sin or injustice, and you desire for your suffering to be vindicated in some way, you need to know that God sees it. He's not asleep at the wheel. God hates what you have suffered, and he knows that wrath needs to fall in order to uphold his righteousness. Last year, I spoke to someone who had lost a female family member. She had gotten wrapped up into a a drug culture, and she died of an overdose uh, in sort of some mysterious circumstances. And this person that I spoke to knew the identities of the two people who were responsible for for pulling this family member into this scene. And it nearly consumed him. He was nearly consumed by his anger toward these people. It ate him up for months and for months. And he, he thought of ways that he could get revenge so that he could have his justice seen. He could have wrath. But he eventually came to the realization that he, he couldn't continue this cycle of violence. It wouldn't help anything. Here's what he said to me. He said, I'm just going to have to swallow this anger and accept it. So I shared this aspect of the gospel with him. 
I said, you can't just swallow that injustice and ignore it. It'll eat you alive. Your desire to see those responsible for this family member's death brought to justice is good. It's right. You don't need to squash that desire. But here's the message of the gospel. God hates what happens to her too. And it will be punished. If those responsible repent, and if they trust in Christ, the wrath for their sin will have already been poured out on him. It's already paid for. So there's no sense in which you should need to be finding wrath of your own. And if they don't repent, if they don't turn to Christ, if they don't have faith, if they die in their rebellion, they will face the wrath of God on their own. Either way, justice will come. God takes evil seriously. And he takes his promises to save seriously. So we should marvel at this beautiful passage. The wisdom of God in at once maintaining his holiness by judging sin and expressing forgiveness by saving sinners at the cross. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? In Christ, God righteously declares the unrighteous righteous. Said otherwise, uh, he justly justifies the unjust. God's integrity is upheld. It's magnified even through what happened at the cross through the gospel. Well, listen, I, I know that this passage is really thick. It's really deep. There's a lot of church words in it. Words like justification and redemption and propitiation. They seem just like words that you might throw around in order to sound Christian. right? Maybe throw them in a worship song and hope it makes sense. I want you guys to leave here understanding. Understanding what those words mean and understanding how to explain it to somebody. And I want you to understand it for your own heart. I need you to understand this these concepts are not just sort of the sort of things that you study in seminary to write papers about. This has very practical applications for everybody. How is it that we can calm our guilty conscience before a holy God? The answer is by recognizing that our guilt has been paid for in full and there's nothing that we could ever do to deserve it, even if we tried. And more importantly, how is it that we can be made right with God, be made right with our Maker? The answer? Through faith alone in Christ's perfect sacrifice. So friends, if you have not put your faith in Christ to be saved from the wrath that is to come, do it now. If you have questions about this passage, I would love to talk to you more about it. So, what would the Christian response be to that character on that TV show that I mentioned earlier? Remember, he recognized that just accepting yourself and just shrugging at your sin is this too shallow. It's not a meaningful answer. It's meaningless. And it does nothing to bring peace to an uneasy conscience. Well, here's what we might say. You're right. You have done horrible things, and you're probably far worse than you actually imagine yourself to be. And your evil will be punished. So far, so good. Here's the good news, though. If you believe that God took on that wrath for you in your place, 
by trusting in Christ, and you take God's side against your sin instead of sin's side against your God, that wrath has already been paid for. It's been dealt with in full. This is God's gospel. You ashamed of it? I hope not.